This was a fun two-parter to go through. I actually debated several times if I was going to do this across one episode or two. Two, excuse me. For those of you who don't watch my Voyage Ruminations, uh, anytime I come across a two-parter, I wait until I've gone through both parts, look over my notes, and then I decide if I'm going to cover it in one or two episodes. In this case, I decided to cover it in one because I'm kind of tired of the 17-minute episodes thing, <laughs> and so I decided, screw it, I'm going to go ahead and just cover both. But it is worth noting that this really is one cohesive episode, just kind of chopped in the middle. In fact, the cliffhanger is a little bit weird in its construction. It's a hell of a cliffhanger. The port opens, a ship's coming through, what the hell, the end. And then, you know, that's it. But then it immediately segues directly into the next episode and the real dilemma they have on their hands. But I don't want to get ahead of myself. So it is nice to see that they are finally looking at the planet they're orbiting. I've been looking at that planet for about 18 or so episodes up to this point. It's like, what's the significance of it? Now, I've actually answered a question about this. I had a comment about this asking, you know, why here? Why this planet? Well, there are some other reasons uh, why here. There are. And I don't want to get too much into that. But the main reason was actually because this happens by sheer luck to be the pinpoint spot that's basically equidistant from all the major powers. It's neutral territory between all of the major alien races and, and, uh, and the galactic powers. So it's a natural site for a neutral station of diplomacy and peace like Babylon 5. Makes sense? It just happens to be orbiting a planet that also happens to be a giant machine made by... Uh, and I don't mind saying that because we never actually find out who made the, the machine. We find out a bit more about it, but... Eh. Anyways, now... Uh, I do like how Londo is in a good mood pretty much throughout all of this episode. Still, I should say, in a good mood. The thing I actually find most funny about that, though, is... At first I thought... Okay, I, I put that note early on. There's an early scene where he's just in there for a moment. And I, was, I thought about it and I was like, Arsh, you're reading too much into this. Then there's a later scene where he is clearly and distinctly in a good mood, acting like it and trying to share that good mood with others. And I'm like, okay, it's Babylon 5. I need to remember that this isn't Voyager anymore. And I am absolutely not reading too much into this. This they, they put a lot of little details into this show. So, yeah, no, he's still in a good mood from the uh, previous events. <clears throat> I also love his quote. This this series has a lot of fantastic quotes. He talks about, you know, how the Narn hate them and all the, you know, if they put all together, their hatred would, would burn across the skies. And they say, well, you don't have to hate them back. And he says, of course we do. Mathematically speaking, we do. They hate us, so we hate them. We hate them, so they hate us. And he says it, and he says this wonderful line about uh, how we are all victims of mathematics. I think that really helps summarize a lot of the Centauri mindset right now, right? That we're all victims of mathematics. No particular individual or evil dictator or revolutionary or whatever is actually responsible or, in, or the, the cause for things being the way they are. It's just the way things are. It's natural based on everything that's happened up to this point in time. So, um, so no word from Mars. And then dun-dun-dun! The open revolt on Mars has finally begun. I have been quietly pointing out the Mars situation developing in the background, and it has been developing for many episodes now. This is a pretty big plot point and one that they have been leading up to for some time. That is fairly typical Babylon 5 style, by the way. They'll, I've talked about this before. They'll introduce something, and then it'll build and build and build, and then... Mars is finally an open revolt. The colony is revolting against the imperial power that controls it because they believe that they are unfairly represented and exploited. 
wow, that sounds really familiar. I can't picture anything from real life history that's like that. Nor can I picture dozens of examples like that from real life history. But seriously, it is an understandable situation. That being said, it is interesting to see that this episode won't really go into it, but it leaves the tiniest doorway to showcase that Mars is not on the right in this conflict. At least not necessarily. I don't want to sound like I'm, I'm in favor of the imperialist exploiters, uh, the Earthers as they call them, but there are a couple points raised about how people are being taxed back on Earth excessively in order to provide for the colony, for the provincial... Uh, yeah, the provincial, I'm saying that right, the provincials on Mars. And the provincials, of course, have legitimate grievances as well. There's no real clear good or bad on this one, at least not yet. And uh, and so I feel like that's an interesting to topic. But the thing I love about this is I finally have an answer to a question I've been asked before. Now, well, I should say I have another answer, because I've answered this question several times. How do you make politics interesting? How do you do that? What do you do to make it engaging to talk about borders and treaties and disputes and interactions and honor and guidance and all those other things? Well, I've given many answers, but we see in this episode and the episodes that have led into this episode one of the ways to do that. You make it about territories and borders and taxes and disputes and war, all those good things, you know, just wonderful things over there. But then you give it a personal element. You give it the down-to-earth element. You have the Morden effect come into play. If you don't know what the Morden effect is, go, go play Mass Effect 2. Um, the Morden effect. When, and in this case, our Morden effect is Garibaldi. We have seen his connections to Mars a dozen times now. Like, it's been constantly mentioned how Garibaldi is basically from Mars. And Sinclair was born on Mars, for that matter, although his connection isn't that big. Garibaldi's always been the guy who has the loyalty to Mars, the connections to Mars, the people from Mars, all that fun stuff. And so Garibaldi is the one who now has a deep, vested personal interest in... Mars. So we see how it affects him, and we add into this the fact that he has someone who he cares about deeply, who is not exactly accounted for in the conflict of a revolutionary insurgency, which is happening. So the entirety of the two episodes, uh, Garibaldi spends trying to get a hold of this woman, and then finds out she's married. <laughs> I have to admit, I was kind of hoping Garibaldi would get a happy ending out of this, but oh well, I guess... <clears throat> Moving on. Uh, hang on. So the next thing I want to talk about is the 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 scene with Drawl. There's a great scene where Drawl comes around the corner and he's like, what is the third tenant of sentience and sapiens, or whatever the heck he says. And she's like, Drawl! You know, because she's excited to see him, and his response is, wrong! And then he tells her what it is. Uh, basically, the idea and capacity to move beyond evolution, beyond selfishness, to be able to serve others, that kind of a thing. I was reminded very strongly of Dune in that, as weird as that sounds. Uh, forgive me for not remembering the exact words. It's actually been a long time since I've read Dune. Um, but there's a test you undertake where you have to put your hand in a pain box, basically. And if you remove your hand from the pain box, you will be killed. It's supposed to be a test of your sentience. In other words you have enough willpower and free will to, to, to do something that is actively hurting you, whereas an animal would not. There's a little more complexity to it than that, but that's the basics of it. And I found that to be an interesting parallel there. I don't know if they did that on purpose or not, but then again, a lot of things uh, tend to tie back into Asimov, Frank Herbert, etc., so that wouldn't surprise me. Um, I also like the very concept of the going to the sea idea. They mention it as if it's a regular thing, which, I mean, that is logical if it were to be so. Uh, the Mimbari reaching a point where they've simply 
gotten too old and they head out to the stars and the end, basically. That's the end of their life uh, for all intents and purposes. And yet in his case, he states it clearly as though he still wants to do something. So maybe that's not clear-cut as I state it. They leave enough ambiguity there for you to consider it, but it's still clearly a, an important cultural thing and very Mimbari. Uh, I've been discussing the Mimbari many times, so I don't feel the need to emphasize why I think that's very Mimbari. But um, I do want to add one other little thing about that. From Dral, we get our first real insight into how bad things are getting back on the Mimbari homeworld, in, in back home, basically, for them. I mention this because if you're paying attention, one thing Babylon 5 likes to do is it'll introduce an idea, usually in the background or part of another thing, and then that idea will be expanded upon a little bit, and then it will become full face. So we've already had the idea that there are multiple castes, and they don't really coordinate with each other. Then we have the fact that the religious caste and the military caste are actively opponent to each other. That happened in Legacies. Now we really get to see how bad it is from their perspective. We get to hear that there is resentment and bitterness and a lack of interest in others and just a general, for lack of a better term for it, cultural decay that's happening to the Membari in a whole and the fact that it's been happening for a full 10 years. Ever since the war was basically cut off at the, at the, at the neck and... Uh, and then the, the Battle of the Line and all those events, things have not been well with the Mimbari. And we get to see a little bit of just how bad that is. The gentleman who plays uh, Drawl, actually, a bit of a spoiler. Uh, well, I guess I'm not going to go into it. But anyways, the actor who plays Drawl uh, does a really good job of the quiet discouragement that he has in his people and how low he feels they've sunk. It's really well done. Um... So another, just, just a tiny little note I want to mention. Uh, the President Santiago is the person who is in charge of basically everything. Uh, obviously, he's got a lot of actual authoritarian power because he's the one who personally gives Sinclair the authority over the entire sector. Not just Babylon 5, the station, but the whole sector. That's pretty insignificant. And Sinclair refusing to adhere to that. I'll talk more about that in just a moment. Um, or re refusing to uh, give, give that away, I should say, without direct orders. Nice seeing the same actor playing the senator, by the way. I like recurring actors like that. Um, but the thing I want to note is, amongst all of this, amongst this Revolutionary War and the discovery of this machine, which I'll talk more about in later, Earth is the one who put the, the communications blank out over Mars. That's very interesting to me, and it says a lot, I think, about the, the mindset of EarthGov right now and the tactics they're putting into play, because that seems more like a thing, to me at least, that Mars would want to do in order to try and reduce the possibility of EarthGov coordinating with the area. But no, EarthGov did that to try and reduce the possibility of Mars coordinating outside. So... Either they're trying to kind of keep this on the down low, which is flat impossible, or more likely, they firmly believe Marv is getting, Mars is getting support from outside Mars. Just food for thought. Um, so the quakes. This is a nice little bit of writing. Uh, basically, the question could be asked, how the hell did nobody discover this machine before now? Well... We actually have a fairly uh, logical answer given in the episode. And great job on that part, I might add. This planet has been protected and sealed until now, except the gentleman is finally dying. And so now that he is finally at the point where he's dying, he is reaching out trying to get to people and, and try to you know, salvage his situation. Um, in further addendum to that, though, 
it is logical that they wouldn't be able to detect the machine inside the planet because the quakes hadn't made those fissures happen yet. I know that sounds like a weird thing, but even with more advanced technology than Babylon 5 has, scanning into quadrillions of tons of rock and dirt and all that is not the easiest thing to do in the world. Even by very high, uh, very, very high advanced tech levels of settings, scanning into and through a planet is usually something that only the really big boys can do. In some cases, you can't do it at all. So it makes perfect sense to me that without the cracks, they were like, ugh. And so it's a nice way to have this be a thing that happens now, writing rise, with it still making sense. Otherwise, the, the audience is left thinking, well, why is this now? Why didn't this come up before now? Anyways, um, I love Londo's efforts to cheer up Garibaldi. It's a great scene. Uh, it's just a silly scene between two friends joking about something ridiculous. I'm, I'm sure a lot of you know what I'm talking about. The, the, the just silly, <laughs> let's, let's just laugh about it kind of a thing. Um, and I love it too because it shows that Londo and Garibaldi do actually have something closer to you know, a real friendship by this point in time. And we already saw it. It was already starting to grow you know, all the way back when we first saw these two. Now we see that it's actually developed past that point, that Londo would go out of his way to see Garibaldi and be like, I am going to help you. I am going to make you feel better. Because I care. In his own way, of course, but nevertheless. Um, I also like the scene with Talia Winters, where Talia's like, why are you doing... Oh, gosh, why are you making this happen? And, and he's like, no, look, I need this. And she's like, okay, fine. Um, and then he, she contacts the Psychor person... And the Psychor person says, I'm not going to do anything official, but I'll go ahead and look into the name. I like that because so far, like the first thing we really saw of Psychor was Bester and, and the more horrible side of Psychor. And every episode since then has actually served, well not everyone, but almost every episode since then has served to kind of soften Psychor, showing that there are people over there who are not horrible bastards and to, who do actually care and so forth and so on. And I thought it was nice to actually see uh, just another little softening of the Psychor personal, that the woman in charge was willing enough to care about another person to see, okay, I'll look into the name to see if she's all right. Because it's an understandable feeling. Not knowing is a lot worse than knowing most of the time. Poor Garibaldi. He did get the worst news imaginable there, didn't he? <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, the next thing I want to mention, of course, is Sinclair detecting the traps on the planet. Now, on the one hand, that doesn't actually make a lot of sense, and it is basically something added to add tension and, and drama to the scene, action scenes, right? But on the other hand, the way the traps thing was, was placed was actually really logical. First of all, he sees a dead alien in a corridor, which is seemingly empty, and there's been automated defenses at every step up to this point in time. So it makes total freaking sense that there would be automated defenses here. I like that he pieced that together. That is logical. I like that he does the counting thing. That is also logical. Most weapons can't fire nonstop, like in any science fiction setting. You can't just forever. Eventually it has to cool off, eject the mag, reload something in order to be able to fire again. So he does it, counts, does it counts. Nice touch. Very, very intelligent. I also love the FX when they go into the planet and see the machine. They do a really good job of getting across the scope and scale and size of the thing. That was pretty awesome. And then a Terran ship shows up. Dun, dun, dun! Um, and so, yeah, this would be another 17-minute episode as I look at my clock right now. But uh, So, Ron Canada actually plays the Terran captain. 
I point that out. You, you may not know the man. He doesn't do a lot of stuff. But I point that out because I just saw him in Juggernaut today. My today. I've been doing a lot of uh, videos today. But uh, from your perspective, I guess that would be... Uh... Okay, never mind. That would be like a month ago. <laughs> wow, I've been doing a lot of videos today. At the beginning of the month, we saw the episode Juggernaut with the Malons in Voyager. And uh, he played the Malon captain. And the funny thing is... He, in both roles, he's basically playing the same role. He he plays the guy who you, at first, think he's the obstinate, militant guy. But he's not. He's actually pretty reasonable and actually is pretty accurate and correct most of the time. And that's the thing I want to mention. There are several scenes where it started to bug me how much everyone was pushing back against this guy. Granted, his attitude probably could have used a little bit of smoothening. But his actual reasoning and thoughts and movements were pretty correct most of the time, especially when it came to military matters. Most notably when he contacts Sinclair and says, Look, this guy has stated an ultimatum. We have to respond militarily. Do I have your support because I need it? And Sinclair, thank God, sees military wisdom and says, Yes, you do. Because he should. Because the, the guy is right. I don't even know his name. The, the guy playing by Rod Canada. He's right. That with their two, uh, with the heavy cruiser and Babylon Five support combined, especially with fighter support, they'll be able to withstand this threat at least theoretically. But without it, they're screwed. And this is an alien who has actively threatened them with death. So, yeah, I would say that that is the correct military strategy. I would also like to add that uh, he has a point about two other things. At one point, he's like, "No, we've just found out the planet is." You know, self-destructing. And the captain's response is, you found that out from an unreliable source who has every reason to lie to us about it. And that is correct. He is an, unrele uh, he is an unreliable source who has every reason to lie about it. That happens to not be true in this case. But it could have been, and in most other circumstances, would have been. Uh, but they treat it like he's just some obstinate jerk-ass, which... <laughs> um, and the final note he has is something I want to talk... I think I'm going to save that final note for last, because we have a really complicated situation here. Uh, so I'm going to save that for last. It's not going to be a controversial box. I don't think it's controversial, but yeah. I also like Garibaldi's magic trick. So there's a couple of guys complaining about the war and how the Mars people need to just be crushed like the idiots they is and all that. And so he... <laughs> He, he says, I want to see a magic trick, grabs his head and smashes him down on the table. There's no pencil involved, but going back and re-watching this couldn't help but re be reminded of a certain Heath Ledger performance. I don't know why, it just came to mind. Um, <laughs> you want to see a magic trick? Um, so, uh, another thing about this episode I want to comment on the setup for Drawl becoming the new member of the machine was forecasted way in advance. Um, but again, I point to this as an example of obvious yet good storytelling. It doesn't bother me that it was obvious. It doesn't bother me that I could guess it from three minutes in. That's not the point of a story. The point of a story is not to go into it and, and try to, to be wrong about it as you're dissecting it. The point of a story is to enjoy it. I've talked about this before with Babylon 5. This is not the first time Babylon 5 has had an obvious yet good story. I just wanted to comment on that really quick. Um, Garibaldi's quote is amazing. So he rants to Sinclair, and it really showcases Garibaldi the person. He talks about how the two biggest, most important things in his life are completely out of his hands. Back on Earth, or excuse me, back on home, Mars, 
back in Mars, there's a war going on. And he can't go there, and he can't help, and he can't hinder. He can't even find out if people he knows there are alive or dead. He is completely incapable of doing anything. The planet he is orbiting is set to self-destruct, to killing him and, and basically everyone on, on board. And he can't do anything. In this episode, we see Garibaldi is very clearly a man of action, a man who is basically adherent to action. I sympathize that with a, lot, with a lot with that myself. When I am powerless to do something, it bothers me tremendously. It gets to me more than, than, than a difficult or strenuous situation. Simply being incapable of doing anything about the situation, total helplessness, total despair, that's much worse than the more negative aspects of struggle or strife or pain to me. And we see that in Garibaldi, too. If only he could be doing something about this, he could, he could work with it, he could fix it, he could make it right. And Sinclair seeing just how badly this is getting to him is what causes him to call on his favors to get him a comlink to Mars. And I mention that because those are basically uh, solids that, that Sinclair has just burnt. Favors that he will never get back again just to get Garibaldi this call. And I mention that again because that's not a small thing, but it shows how much Sinclair cares about the man and how much this is bothering Garibaldi himself. One other final wonderful note there. They talk about how, you know, women, children, civilians need to get off first because they cannot, physically are incapable of getting everyone off the station in time. It's not going to happen. I love the fact that there is this unspoken statement there that they are going to stay on the station. They're going to go down with the ship. Garibaldi and Sinclair both. And Sinclair basically says flat out, get Ivanova out. I like that. Ivanova is quite young compared to the two of them. And as Sinclair points out, she's at the beginning of her career, and really, in many ways, the beginning of her life. The two of them have seen a lot together, and separately, and they both know and are willing to lay down their lives for this. But Ivanova deserves that chance, and I really liked that scene, and it really shows how strong the connection between these three characters has become over the years. Um... I'm going to skip forward a bit here. I find it interesting the three people that the Vron uh, interacts with. Sinclair, Londo, and, and Drawl are the three people. The three people who he felt, and with the machine's help, I mean, this is kind of a spoiler, but the machine basically has super scanners. Uh, to summarize, we kind of hear about this in this episode, so I don't think that's a big spoiler. So he could tell which people would be suited for this job, for this task of taking over this immense responsibility, this tremendous task of running the machine. This is not a privilege that's being given out. This is a burden, and he knew it, and he wanted to find people who were capable of shouldering that burden. And he appeared to Sinclair, yep, Drawl, yeah, okay, and Londo. With that little action, with that tiny little movement, we see a huge window into Londo Malari, the character. And if you ever questioned again why Londo is my favorite character, I think you've just seen a big reason why. Now, Londo does ask for a favor for this. And I'm not going to say what that favor is, but he does call on that favor in the future. But the fact that he was willing to do this, the fact that he was someone that without uh, bias or whatnot, was proven to be worthy of this kind of burden, of, of the sacrifice that it requires, I think says a lot about that character. And his speech he gives to Drawl and Delenn, I wanted to die on my feet doing something glorious, doing something that mattered. 
I like that. That's basically the undercurrent theme of all of, of both of these episodes, by the way. Life having significance. And in fact, that comes back again because Drawl gives the speech to Garibaldi when they're down on the planet, when Londo gets them there. Drawl says to Garibaldi, please let my life have significance. Let me do something with it. Let me matter to people. Let me serve others. Of course he says that to Garibaldi, someone who of course understands that concept, who has just been through a, a, a tremendous and stressful time about being powerless to help others. I also like how Delenn flat out manipulated the situation to ensure that Sinclair did not become the one in the machine. Once again, we see that the Membari are more than willing to manipulate and machinate, even when in a dire situation like this one. Even at the cost of her friend. Although, in fairness, Drawl wanted this, so shrug. The battle scene was pretty good. I don't have much else to add about that. They do some good stuff with it, though. It, it, it reminds me, in a way, of, of the Honorverse, in a weird way. Uh, a series of battles I always enjoy reading about in the Honorverse. There's, there's a bunch of cool stuff on display, you know, point defense systems and, uh, and long-range turret batteries and, and winding up guns. You know, they do a bunch of stuff like that that just... It's, it's like the battle things I've talked about earlier in Babylon 5. It adds to the flavor of it, so it's not just... You know, there's a degree of uh, thought put into it, into the actual tactics being used. And for me, that enha enhances my enjoyment of it. So that was pretty cool. And Drawl's point at the end is great and will lead perfectly into my final thoughts. Drawl says, This planet should be no one's in particular. If any one organization, he doesn't say that word, but if any one organization got a hold of this planet, the balance of power would be utterly and irrevocably destroyed. And that would lead to war and worse. And it cannot happen. So this planet will be under the purview of everyone or no one. And that leads me to my point. I hope at least some of you have been watching my Primus stuff. I can't imagine all of you have, of course. But in the Primus campaign, some time ago, many, many months ago now, my players... Uh, came across an ancient psionic airship, tremendously advanced. So it's, it's the first intact airship of the science that has ever been found. And this thing is ridiculously powerful, large, has technology they, they didn't even fully figure out yet. It was a game changer for the whole setting if used improperly. And I plopped it into the laps of the players, and the players had no idea what to do with it. But the point of that was exactly what the machine is in this situation. In other words, and there really is no real-life equivalent to this. It would be like if, in real life, we discovered the USS Enterprise. I, I'm, I'm Like, just over there, it's parked and empty, and we can just go take it. We could have the Enterprise. Do you know what that would do to the world? I know that sounds like a joke, but hear me out seriously. With the level of technology, even if it was the original, the 1701, even if it was the original, the level of technology and the level of advancement that that would give to whoever controlled it is monumental. Right now, overall, across the Earth, we're kind of like this. A constant flux of balance, but it doesn't go beyond a certain band. Not up and not down. That would allow whoever controls it to go way, way up out of that balance and completely shove everyone either against them or under them as a result. And that is exactly what the machine is here. 
it's a great and complicated situation, and it's one of the reasons why I, f I feel it's interesting that the captain in charge of the cruiser, the Hyperion, pretty much immediately understands the significance of this. He may not understand the long-term political aspects of what he's doing. He may not understand that he is about to start a war without end, basically, because he would. But he does understand that this is something that whoever gets it first gets it, and they need to be here to make sure anyone else doesn't come to claim it. It can't be theirs unless they're willing to fight for it. And the, the point is made that a heavy cruiser is not a small asset, that that is a big freaking deal under these circumstances. In all honesty, I imagine there would be more showing up if A, there was more in the region, I mean, you know, there's still travel time involved, and B, there wasn't a war going on back on Mars. So, yeah, Earth trying to stake a claim early makes lots of sense, and would violently disrupt the balance of power across the entire galaxy. Unless, of course, the Vorlons stepped in and were like, no, 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 we're not going to allow that. But, but we're not going to get into them. The Vorlons do tend to be a bit of an equalizer. Um, I, I wish I could discuss this more, but anything else is just theoretical what-if situations. I mean, let's say, for example, that Earth actually did manage to lay a claim to it. Okay. What do the other races do in relation reaction to that? Do they try to stake a claim as well? Okay, well, let's say they do, and let's say Earth decides to be diplomatic about it. Okay, we'll allow you here, you know, under supervision. The idea here being that we'll all share the machine, but we get the lion's share of it. Well, that might work to stabilize peace for a little while. That will make resentment happen, and I guarantee you that will make any information or control or access to the higher levels of technology that Earth is hoarding for itself a premium object, which will either involve covert operations, black market operations, or flat-out military conquest. I would not be surprised to see an entire battle fleet show up over this planet trying to usurp Earth's primary uh, focus over that. That wouldn't happen immediately, of course, but we're not talking about immediately, are we? Furthermore, this, plant, this machine has incredible offensive capacity. What if Earth turned this thing into, I know this is a bad parallel, a Death Star? An actual battle station designed to just hold this sector of space and, and just control it and use it in order to exert influence throughout the region, throughout the sector. And, and just, what if Earth tried to hold it and failed? What if the other races responded immediately because, and this is true, tactically and militarily speaking, the only chance the other races would have to gain any kind of lion's share or total control over the machine would happen either immediately, if they could mobilize quickly enough, or after a long and protracted battle later on, as I previously discussed. So let's say they, they say, oh, this is ours, and then an armed fleet shows up in a week before Earth is ready to defend it. Earth has now just lost it, and you can see how this cycle could just keep going. The biggest problem with a game changer when you introduce it to a setting like the Skyclaw, like the Machine, and like the Enterprise if it landed on Earth, is there's no real winners there. That's the real problem with a game changer scenario. It's one of the reasons why it's so fascinating to use as a writer, at least by my perspective, and why I like using game changers. Because there is no good answer. Once it's been introduced, it can't be removed. Not really. Well, okay, that's a lie. It can be removed, but being, removing it is basically the best option. No one benefits from it, and that way none of that garbage happens. Because all you're going to create is more strife, more war, a lot of other unpleasant things. Anyways, that's all I got. Like I said, short episode, uh, episodes. I apologize for not having more to say. I've decided after some thought not to have any spoiler sections. We'll discuss the machine in greater detail later. I will see you guys next week.